inspired by a vision of, you know, one day being in Jerusalem where actually there's a dawn on a, a, a new place where actually everybody's enjoying equal rights, whatever the state structure that achieves that, uh, where there is not a state that privileges the rights of one people over another. Um, and to be in that moment to say, you know, what message will that give to people that this profound injustice was overcome? What did you do to contribute to it? You know, what did you do to say, I added my voice, I added my weight in whatever way I could to that outcome, which will give a message for all of humanity. And that, that's the hope that we, you know, even in our darkest moments, in our angriest moments, we can't we can't lose that and finally we can't lose it because the palestinian people don't have a choice the electronic intifada the electronic intifada the electronic intifada this is the electronic intifada podcast Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada. I'm your co-host, Nora Barrows-Friedman in California. And I'm Asa Winstanley in London. Asa, how are you? Yeah, you know, pretty good, all things considered. I mean, I think this is going to be our last show of the year, right? Most likely. Yeah, I think we have um, some uh, speeches and, and discussion, panel discussions that, that will air over the winter break. Um, so we'll be back in... Uh, in studio uh, after the new year. But yeah, wow, what what a year. What a year it's been <laughs> for Palestine and, and all over the world. Yeah, I mean, let's not mince words. It's been a bit of a crappy year. Yeah, but um, I'm really, you know, always very proud of the work that the Electronic Intifada does, despite and in spite of the chaos and the various crises. Um, and yeah, we have uh, extraordinary content coming your way for 2021 we're great we do great work and um you know i know we're only going to go from strength to strength in 2021 yeah um and a plug if you haven't donated to the electronic intifada um, please do so go to electronicintifada.net and you'll help keep us strong and vibrant and vital um through 2021 and beyond thank you so much for your support there and uh Asa, let's. Um, we have a wonderful interview today with Ben Jamal of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, uh, the UK's largest Palestine solidarity group. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, what what we talk about with with Ben. Well, we had an interesting discussion with Ben Jamal, um, PSC's director. He's been the director for about four years now, and you know the. PSC is an interesting group. It's, it, I mean, it's the it's the biggest the biggest Palestine solidarity group in the UK, as you said, and it works tirelessly in a lot of ways on in some very unglamorous kind of work, which I personally wouldn't wouldn't want to do. You know, it just it's sort of the nitty gritty stuff of writing letters, petitions, lobbying MPs. Um, you know, manning stalls outside, you know, in the cold weather, things like that. Yeah. So, you know, they're activists around the UK. Um, it's, it's quite an old organisation, relatively speaking. I believe it started in the early 80s. Um, and, uh, yeah, we just wanted to have a bit of a, uh, a chat with Ben and just to see uh, where the organisation is at and the state of Palestine Solidarity Campaign in the UK at, at the moment and some of the threats that it faced 
faces and uh, censorship and th- and so on and so forth, things like that. And, um, you know, the, the smear campaign to portray Palestine solidarity as anti-Semitism. So we had a, we had a good chat with him and uh, that's what you're about to listen to. Excellent. Well, let's go to that interview after a short musical break. Stay with us. We're joined this week by Ben Jamal. Ben is the director of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, the UK's largest Palestine solidarity group. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks, Asa. Nice to be here. Last week, you concluded your week of action um, and in the the PSC's uh, week of action, um, and it involved trade unions, university students, artists, intellectuals, politicians came together to speak out against Israel's apartheid system and more than seven decades of ethnic cleansing and expulsion of the Palestinian people. At this time when home demolitions and land confiscation is rampant in the occupied West Bank, Gaza is on the brink of yet another humanitarian crisis with COVID spreading and the blockade making supplies even more scarce. And when Palestinians with Israeli citizenship continue to face legalized discrimination why was this year's week of action different from previous years and how has the solidarity movement grown? And look, you've, you've sort of framed, framed the question in the right way, I think, in terms of, um, I mean, obviously the, the, the week of action was all wrapped around um, the UN International Day of Solidarity. One, one of the key things that we said at various points that this sort of day of solidarity that was, I think, established in 1977 um, you know, presumably in the hope that a, a call for solidarity and the pressure that that would generate on governments would end the oppression of the Palestinian people. And, um, you know, here 42 years later, I think we can legitimately say that Palestinians have never needed solidarity uh, more than they do at the moment. Um, you know, Trump's gone, um, but the framework of his plan remains. You'd have to be very naive to think that Joe Biden's going to row back on core components and we've always framed and understood this so-called deal of the century as a as an attempt to eliminate the palestinian cause entirely so the core frame that we put around it was uh, and the slogan used was stop annexation and apartheid sanctions now and and the core messages we were delivering across all sectors of of uk society was you know firstly in relation to annexation there's a there's a, a lie abroad, a sort of um, narrative that's being used around the the sort of Abraham Accords, the you know the deals between um, the despotic Arab states and the Israeli government that, that somehow those have taken the threat of the jury annexation off the table, and and that's a nonsense. You know Netanyahu's made clear in numerous statements uh, we we're merely suspending that, but the core message is is. It's akin with what you said. Let's focus on de facto annexation. Um, you know, de jure annexation is Israel's attempt to make legal uh, under Israel's system what what it is doing on the ground and de facto annexation, highest level of home demolitions, highest level of settlement expansion since 2012, is a, is am, as much a breach of international law. Second, and, and requires action. Secondly. 
um, we very specifically use the slogan end apartheid it is part of a wider strategic push to mainstream this narrative and to get people to understand that you need to focus not just on what's happening in the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza, the you know the so-called 67 occupation, uh, but the deprivation of Palestinian rights extends to the lack of equality for Palestinian citizens, the denial of the right of return, and that overarching structure of power that Israel is imposing meets the legal definition of apartheid and consequences flow from that. So that was a message we took into all of those arenas. Um, and then finally, well, what's the response? Well, it's the response that Palestinians have demanded coherently since 2005, uh, the call for BDS, for the government that means the employment of sanctions. We always frame that very simply, that actually what, in narrow terms, are Palestinians saying? They're saying, here's how our rights are being deprived. It cannot happen without the support of international the international community through governments and international society so end your complicity end your complicity through your financial diplomatic and political support for this and, and so that that was the message we were delivering what was different about it is the importance of the message now for all the reasons i've given this is a this is an urgent moment um, and i suppose that we're delivering a, a, another urgent moment for the for the world in terms of covid so we were having to do most of this protest online it was the first time for example the lobby of parliament first time we've done i think the first time anyone's tried a virtual lobby of parliament so we were you know requiring mps to set up meetings on zoom um, and engage with them in that way can we let's just take a step back for a minute here and um maybe tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background how did you first start campaigning for palestinian rights yeah i mean i suppose the 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 sort of simple answer I can give to that um, but actually the picture is a bit more complicated but the simple answer is um, I'm Palestinian uh, so I'm the son of a Palestinian uh, father um, my grandparents on my father's side uh, alongside most of my extended family were, were forced to flee from their home they lived in West Jerusalem um, in a really beautiful part of West Jerusalem called Talbia um, which is filled with amazing homes built by Palestinians in the 1920s and 30s, many of which were, were sort of built by my, um, my extended family. And they all, in, um, all fled in um, 1948. Um, my father was uh, um, an Anglican priest. He's one of the few Palestinian Anglican priests, and he was in 1948 in Nazareth. Um, and there's an interesting story there, which we probably don't have time to tell here, but Nazareth was one of the few Palestinian towns that was not ethnically ethnic cleansed in 1948. And um, my father had some, some role in that process. Um, but he stayed there to the 1950s, met my mum, moved to UK. So that, that's my sort of background. But the more complicated bit is actually I, I grew up, partly because of you know, my parents divorced when I was very young, I grew up with my mother without a huge knowledge of my Palestinian heritage. Um, and actually, uh, it was, I've written about this, I think uh, as a student, uh, I traveled, I got on a boat from uh, Haifa, uh, from um, Athens to Haifa, which was like a three day party. And I was there with a bunch of students and I was having a, a great time. 
and I was, and the way I've put it is I was a, I was a young, privileged, white, middle-class male. That was my identity. That's how I conceived myself. And I was with a bunch of students and we were going over and we were going to have a great time. When I got off the boat um, and I got asked a question about my name when I got to customs in Haifa. Uh, and innocently I said, you are, I'm Palestinian. And then I was subjected to sort of four, four hours of interrogation. And the way I framed it was um, subsequently was I got on that boat as a white middle class Britain and I got off and discovered that actually I was I was also Palestinian um, because that was immediately how I was perceived. And I can't say that was a sort of a Damascus moment, but it sowed something in terms of um, of my awareness of my identity that, that took time to sort of come to fruition. And the moment I got politically active or thought I need to get really politically active on Palestine came actually quite late in life, really. Um, sometime around, I think, 98, 99, um, I came upon a rally in London uh, that PSC was organising. And I went to spoke to some people and thought, um, actually, why am I not involved? Why am I not engaged? And it gave me a route. And sometime after that, I set up um, a branch of PSC in my my area of London um, and sort of ran that for 13 years. I just set up a meeting, invited everybody in the area who was a member of PSC and said, let's, let's form a branch and sort of learn on the job. How do you get engaged? How do you become active? How do you campaign? Um, and then later became um, a member of PSC's executive and then the sort of director in 2016. So the simple answer is, well, I'm Palestinian. It took me time for that to resonate in terms of political activism. Now, if I'm honest, why, you know, if people put the question, why should we get engaged in Palestine? Part of my answer is because it's one of the core moral issues of our time. Uh, I think there are very often sort of defining issues in terms of, you know, in, in international issues that resonate in terms of, you know, identifying core moral issues. And so one of the arguments I make, you know, Palestine is at the heart of the anti-racist struggle. You cannot be a coherent anti-racist and not be concerned about the most egregious example of a you know, institutionalized system of discrimination meeting the definition of apartheid that exists. So to me, it's a fundamental issue um, that should be on the agenda of anyone who has progressive values, who cares uh, about rights, who cares about how people are treated, who believes that rights belong to everyone and, and shouldn't be allocated on the basis of race, ethnicity, etc. You have to care about Palestine, uh, but you have to make people aware of it so they understand it uh, and start to care. Ben, um, in terms of, you know, this, this public campaign of not just awareness, but action in, in support of Palestinian rights, um, Let's talk a little bit about the state of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement in the UK um, and how PSC is involved and what uh, you've identified as the most important campaigns, uh, BDS campaigns right now. Yeah, and look, I mean, I know we're going to come on to talk about this, but I think if you, the honest response for anyone in, uh, when starting with what's the state of um, BDS campaigning at the moment is is about the pressure we're under in the in the uh, global attempts to delegitimize this. But but in looking at that, you've got to have I think uh, an understanding of a long time frame. 
um, and understanding also that the reason that the BDS movement is being targeted and uh, there's an attempt to delegitimize is because of Israel's concern about the strategic threat that the BDS movement uh, poses. And, you know, we're not speculating. They've written about it at great length. The, you know, Israeli think tank, the Ray Institute, as you know, wrote copiously about this in its report in 2010, saying Israel's not taking this seriously. Uh, and this can lead to, this will dismantle the system. This will lead to Israel's isolation. So if you look at that long time frame, and, you know, the time that I've been actively involved, 20 years or more in campaigning, We've seen definitive shifts in um, public perception. Um, so one thing I would say is when I began campaigning and look at going out on the streets. So you go out and you talk to people, you hand them a leaflet, you try and persuade them to take action. Um, I would say when I first got engaged, most conversations, you know, for those who are engaged, and the reality anyone who's done this knows, you go through a filter first of all of, I could be handing out 20 pound notes, don't bother me, I'm not interested, I'm here to do my shopping, go away please. So once you've got through that, those that engage, I would say uh, 20 years ago or so, the filter that you went through first of all was, was one of negativity, you always had to have a conversation about suicide bombing, and in a really straightforward basic way if you wanted to frame it on a really crude level of where did people's sympathies lie it was something's going on in the middle east i don't quite understand it but i think the palestinians are doing something pretty awful to the israelis uh, and and they're the villains and that has fundamentally shifted there's no doubt about that you 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 feel that if you go out and you engage with people again the same filter you know half the people don't want to know but those that do um, there's a basic intuitive sense that's shifted. And I think, you know, what shifted it was the assault on Gaza in 2014. It was the, the, the attack on Lebanon. Um, the bombing of Lebanon had an impact on people, the construction of the wall. All of these sort of shifted people's sense of what's going on here. Um, and now there's, a, a, a at a basic level, a sort of sense of... Um, the Palestinians are the invict victims of some sort of injustice. Whether people can articulate what's the nature of that injustice, what should I be doing about it, you start with that basic different level of understanding. For us then in terms of BDS, so for us, um, why do we do BDS? I'd say, well, first of all, because that's what the Palestinians have asked us to do, and that carries moral weight and authority. And secondly, because it speaks to what are our responsibilities. Um, and particularly in the UK, we have very specific historic responsibilities because we are, you know, we are complicit on steroids, aren't we? You know, going back to Balfour, going back to what Britain did during the mandate, going, you know, then taking you forward through the actions of successive UK governments. Um, we are one of the, those, you know, international forces that has enabled Israel to sustain what it's doing and given that impunity, but being proactive. You know, even today, we've just heard of a new military cooperation deal between Israel and, and, and the UK. So in a way, the message has to be, you've got to end your complicity. And that's taken across all sorts of levels. It's directed at the government, it's directed at civil society, and it's directed at individuals through how they purchase, how they spend money, how they invest it. And there's a range of campaigns we're involved in. I mean, the ones I would highlight at the moment, I think those that are, are, are geared towards institutions, 
Um, so we've got a campaign where we're looking at how do local government pension schemes invest their money. We did research that identified that three and a half billion pounds held by you know local government pension schemes these are local authorities council workers um you know millions of workers money that are invested in companies that are you know fundamentally complicit with what israel is doing so the message there and this is this is a campaign supported by the key unions that represent those workers is saying this is not how people's money should be invested and that's calling for them to divest from all of those companies we got a similar campaign that where we're supporting students on campus. Research we did said 450 million pounds worth of university money. That's money they get from students that's invested in complicit companies. The students are saying, well, divest. We don't want to be complicit in that way. We don't want our money to be spent um, supporting the, you know, the um, um, commissioning of war crimes, etc. And then we target complicit companies. You know, we have campaigns geared towards Puma uh, that's complicit through its sponsorship of, uh, of the Israeli Football Association, um, campaigns that target HSBC Bank that has all sorts of financial relationships supporting uh, the Israeli military infrastructure and its infrastructure occupation. Um, and each of those has the same message. This cannot sustain itself unless you allow um, your money to be spent in this way. And also a message you can't be neutral that if you're allowing this to happen, then you, you become complicit. You can't sit on the fence on this issue. You have to make a moral choice. Um, so, you know, th that's the heart of the campaign. And in terms of where it's at, again, um, you have to have a long time scale. Uh, you've got to get through the barrier of making people care. There's so many things that people want to be focused on. Why should I care about something that's happening you know, miles away from where I live, then you've got to get through the filter of, well, how are people taught about this through um, the mainstream media? You know, there aren't, there aren't many Asa Winstanleys out there who are trying to sort of break through that and say, actually, understand it in this way. Um, so you've got to break through that. Um, and then you've got to actually draw the lines for people and say well you are involved you you are capable of making a difference these are not overwhelming forces you can make a difference and we always use south africa as our model because it's a good model it says actually collectively when people act they can make change but you've got to make them care about it you've got to make them believe that and you've got to be persistent so as part of the week of action um you've already mentioned that was your lobby of parliament um tell us a bit about how that went and how was it sitting with mps albeit virtually some of whom are quite pro-israel how was it sitting with them and trying to persuade them to express some sort of solidarity with palestinian rights um well <laughs> lobbying can be hard work and we encourage people yeah, to Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> I, think I, I don't think I'd be very good at it. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, I have to say, but I'm, I'm, you know, this might say something about my personality. I, I was in about five or six meetings. Um, I quite enjoy it. Um, but that, that, you know, that might say something about me and um, um, the dysfunction <laughs> of my personality. But um, 
it's it's a challenge and i think you know sometimes particularly when you're meeting an mp that really isn't engaged people can feel what's the point of this and one of the things that um one of the messages we give is be realistic about you know this can only be one part if we were giving a message that the only route to political change is through lobbying then then i think we would all be feeling quite desperate uh, it, it is an aspect of what we have to do but we have to reach we have to be active across a range of areas and involved in direct bds campaigns uh, and other forms of of direct action um but it it is if you are not in that room making your mp aware then you are not giving them the message that this matters. One of the things that stuck, I had a conversation this time with, I can probably, I'm sure you won't mind me naming him, Richard Bergen, who said, I hope you're telling everyone the two things that um, however difficult it is, that the fact that they are still engaging with their MPs resonates. It means that it becomes hard for MPs to forget this is on the agenda. And second, the MPs talk to each other. So the fact that you have contacted, you know, hundreds of MPs today, and have we had on the day 60 meetings with MPs people know that these meetings are taking place and therefore it's keeping Palestine on the agenda I also have a recall of the last physical lobby we did an MP who represented Tory MP who represented a constituency in Wiltshire um, came in to um, attend the lobby and then wanted a separate meeting with PSC and really interestingly wanted a photograph taken with us wanted to put it out um, and I actually said to her, what brought you in here today? And she said, well, I've got to be honest with you, I get more emails about Palestine than any other subject. And this was somebody representing a farming community in Wiltshire. And I thought, well, that resonates. And I'm going to be naive to think, well, therefore, she's going to suddenly um, transform her attitude and shift Tory party policy and everything else. But it meant she could not forget the issue. So it, it, it sort of matters on that level. Um, and you had a varied experience. You get some that are very, very hard. You know the, the political space in which you operate within Parliament can be very difficult. We, um, but, you know, this very specific ask we take into the parliamentary arena are geared by where do we think we've got the most space to push people. So you know where you want to get them at the end of the journey. It's where are you at at the moment and where's the next step that we're pushing to. So, for example, where we're dealing with Labour Party MPs at the moment, we go in and we know that in the summer the Labour Party said that its policy was uh, for an end to trade with settlements, but we know, because we've clarified this, that this is on the basis of if Israel proceeds to, to jury annexation. So the key message going into them was, well that's not good enough. Why are you not calling for a ban on settlement goods? And an end to trade with the settlements simply on the basis of the de facto annexation that's taking place in front of your eyes and that the push is there and we think we've got the space we've got you know 14 major trade unions that are affiliated to PSC that all occupy that position and some beyond that uh, position the TUC is clearly behind that position so that was the sort of message we were pushing up the other thing we were doing one of the actions which is a small thing early day motions people know they don't have any power they're really a statement of what people think uh, but we had one uh, that had been put down that very specifically talked about apartheid and that was deliberate and we had a number of mps saying well if you hadn't used the word apartheid i'd have signed the edm 
Um, and that reinforced us why it was important we had put that word down. And we came back and we challenged them. We said, well, why? And people was, you know, we got messages back from some MP saying, oh, it's inflammatory. Um, it's, <laughs> it's divisive. Uh, it upsets people. I spoke to one MP and I said, can I just take off my hat as director of PSC and just talk to you as a Palestinian? And can I ask you to think about if you've been speaking to a black South African who had described their experience, you said, yeah, but it's, it's a bit upsetting for people when you talk about it in that way. And it sounds like you're angry with white people, etc. What were you just saying? And surely the question is, am I describing it accurately or not? Is this an accurate description? Because I'm not using it casually. I'm not using it pejoratively. I'm calling it apartheid because of detailed legal analysis that shows in the myriad of ways why, you know, what Israel is doing meets the definition of apartheid. So surely your question should be, is this accurate? And if it is accurate and that upsets some people, then that's, isn't that their problem? Isn't it a problem if they're upset uh, by the definition of Israel as a state practicing apartheid? They need to examine their attitude to Israel and their moral position. And that's it. Now, whenever you put it like that, you always win the argument. It doesn't mean they're then going to shift. You've got more work to do. But in all the feedback we got, there wasn't a single person who engaged in that way who came away saying, no, actually, the MP was able to construct arguments to show why that was a fallacious. Of course they can't. And so we keep chipping away. Every MP got sent the Virginia Tilly Richard Falk report that was produced for the UN a few years ago and outrageously suppressed. But now every MP in Parliament has had that report sent to them. We were going to we will follow up with a further lobby. Every MP got a video from Michael Link, which was a fantastic video. He went into absolute forensic detail as he does on the reality of de facto annexation. He also analysed the apartheid argument. It wasn't the heart of what he was saying, but it was there. Again, very hard to sort of dispute. But we know it's not just a matter of, it's the political forces that are lined up you've got to overcome. But we keep chip, chipping away. And we and at, at the very least, part of what we achieved was, well, you know, the attempt to delegitimize this word, we've resisted it. We've come in and said, no, we're going to call it apartheid. It is apartheid. And we're coming in telling you that's how the TUCs refer to it this summer as well. Um, and that's how increasing bodies of people uh, are referring to it. And you're going to have to come up with your constructive arguments why that's not accurate, because your attempts to delegitimize it, we are, we are not going to um, tolerate that. We're going to resist them. That's the voice of Ben Jamal. He's the director of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign in the UK. You know, these examples that you gave of when, you know, when you go to MPs and you lay out why this is apartheid and they say, oh, that could be upsetting. It's, you know... Yeah. Uh, these are talking points given to them usually by Israel lobby yeah. organizations yeah. Um, trying to distract legitimate criticism and interrogation of human rights violations by saying that it's you know anti-Semitic to um, to criticize Israel and its policies. You know there are increasing threats of censorship against the Palestine Solidarity Movement around the world. We see it in the U.S. Of course, here you know there are more than 30 states that have passed these anti-BDS uh, measures. There's federal legislation pending that would criminalize criticism of Israel. We have the adoption by executive order of the uh, IHRA definition, which conflates criticism of Zionism and Israel with anti-Semitism. Um, 
Can you talk about how this has manifested itself in the UK in particular and and really like how you have to keep showing up and and, and yeah. dealing with these kinds of, of um, attacks? Yeah, and look, this is a huge challenge and you're right, Nora, to put this into a global perspective because some of this debate over what, uh, all, all these, these efforts to um, delegitimize and create what we refer to as the sort of shrinking space, deny people the right to discuss the facts of Palestinian uh, oppression uh, and to advocate for the Palestinian people is global. And what in the UK, and be, particularly because of the, um, how this has manifested itself in debates inside the Labour Party, um, where what's happened there, there's a particular dynamic. So uh, those who have an interest in suppressing um, the right to speak on Palestine um, and want to achieve that via the conflation of anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism, with legitimate critique of the laws, policies, constitutional order of the State of Israel, um, join forces with people who wanted to um, undermine Jeremy Corbyn and his socialist project, and some of whom had really no interest in the issues in relation to Israel-Palestine whatsoever. Some, some obviously had the dual agenda, some didn't, but, but found that this particular stick um, was a useful one. Um, so it, it acquired a particular flavour and made the issue particularly politically toxic in the UK. Um, and one of the manifestations of that, since the, you know, when the British government in, what, 2016 um, adopted the IHRA definition, I mean, PSC began to speak amongst others at that point about what were the, the dangers of this definition and how it conflated anti-Semitism with criticism of, of Israel. And for quite a period of time, you couldn't get anybody, you couldn't get any mainstream attention on that. Um, you couldn't get anyone interested in what is the IHRA definition. And then some, suddenly, because of what was happening in the Labour Party, the summer of 2018, when the Labour Party, suddenly the demand that the Labour Party adopt the IHRA became the symbol of how it was going to demonstrate it was tackling anti-Semitism seriously it suddenly became the demand this is what you have to do you have to adopt this definition suddenly everybody every media outlet all the mainstream media became experts in the ihra definition which which became sort of defined as an international definition which was universally accepted and the labor party was doing something uniquely absurd and abhorrent in in, in raising any questions or concerns about it and that sh sort of shifted the parameters of debate here. But what's going on is global. The same debates, the same issues are happening across the globe. Um, and then attached to broader attempts to delegitimize by bringing in laws, uh, particularly aimed at BDS activism to try to criminalize it, prescribe it. France, Germany, United States have sort of brought in versions of these laws. But underpinning all of that is the same narrative um, that actually um, the BDS movement is inherently anti-Semitic and, and, and you know the tool used to make that argument is the IHRA definition. So it has become, now one of the interesting sort of developments in that, two years ago a lot of the arguments, so um, when we were making the case that what people are trying to do here, how the definition is being used is specifically to try to, de to delegitimize BDS and specifically to stop people talking about any 
aspect of what Israel's doing that can be described as racist. You can't describe its laws as racist. You can't use the word apartheid. You can't talk about ethnic cleansing. Um, the defenders of the IHRA would use the argument, no, 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 that's not what anyone, no one would interpret it that way. I, I remember seeing a, a debate with my chair, um, then chair of PSC, and Jonathan Friedland from The Guardian on Newsnight, where he was saying, I want to, Jonathan Friedland kept saying, I want to bang my head on the table every time I hear someone say that the IHRA definition stops you criticizing Israel. It very specifically doesn't, nobody would interpret it in that way. Meanwhile, allowing, you know, that was a few months after a group of MPs had taken a petition to number 10 Downing Street calling for the government to introduce laws to stop events happening on universities under the banner Israel Apartheid Week because it was anti-Semitic to call Israel an apartheid state under the IHRA. So you have this process. Now it's becoming much more naked. So you're talking about our lobby last week. Before we went there, uh, every MP got sent something by a group called the Israel Britain Alliance, which is a sort of, you know, an offshoot or a campaign under the uh, Zionist Federation, telling MPs, PSC is coming to you this week, uh, calling Israel an apartheid state. Uh, that is factually wrong. It is not an apartheid state, but it is also anti-Semitic because the IHRA definition says that it's anti-Semitic to call Israel an apartheid state, which of course the IHRA definition doesn't actually say, but it's written in a way uh, that allows you to make that sort of nefarious interpretation if you choose to. So that the battleground on this is becoming sort of clearer. All the MPs received this email that, that was saying that, um, you know, calling Israel an apartheid state is anti-Semitic according to the IHRA definition, which is, which is of course not what the IHRA definition says. So in a way, there's, a, there's an element of this where actually part of my view is that now it's shifted onto terrain where the agenda is becoming, you know, um, very stark and very clear when people want to try and make that argument. In a sense, that that um, that is not necessarily a bad thing in, in terms of making clear the, the, the agenda. But the other thing we're very conscious of, the way this whole process works, and, and we've always... Um, been very clear about this in, in terms of how we have to strategize against it, that actually in terms of examples of the IHRA definition being used directly to stop something happening. So somebody, for example, let's say on a university, um, citing the IHRA and stopping an event taking place illegitimately. Um, so where there is no grounds to say, actually, this is a legitimately anti-Semitic event. There are very, very few examples. Um, what happens is it creates the chilling effect that works in two ways. So one, it makes sort of organisers, uh, even if they don't have an ideological motivation against the event, nervous and think, well, I don't know, maybe this could, maybe we could come under pressure. So they find other ways of stopping something happening. And, you know, the classic example of this uh, that we drew attention to was this council in, in the UK, in London, that stopped a bicycle ride raising money for children in Gaza because on their website they'd made a reference to the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in 1948 and, and comparisons to apartheid and a big council ride for Palestine big ride for Palestine and a council official we got hold of we you know we we were in receipt or one of our local activists of the email saying you can't have this ride and the reason given was so dubious that we we did a freedom of information request 
And this, this revealed a whole string of emails between council officials where there was no ideological motivation. They weren't saying, we don't want this event to take place because we think it's you know, pernicious. They were saying, oh, I don't know. Maybe it does violate the IHRA. So we probably shouldn't allow it. But the, the, you know, one of the crucial emails said, but don't mention that to them because that'll open a can of worms. Yeah. Let's, let's find another reason. So they came up with, we don't allow political rallies in, in our parks, despite the fact that the mayor had held a, an election rally in the park only about a month previously. Yeah, it was transparent rubbish. It was absolute transparent rubbish. And you would never have known about it. That's the thing. You would never have known the IHA was involved. Exactly. So you've got that element of the chilling effect and then you've got the chilling effect that just creates fear makes people worried about speaking up makes people think well i won't even organize an event because this may transgress this or i don't want to put my head above the parapet the, the example i cite of that was the um the summer when um so you know when the great march of return began in march and israel began on a weekly basis to kill palestinians and then you recall the you know the um, U.S. opened its embassy on Jerusalem on the same day that Israel shot dead 62 people in Gaza. We'd held a series of rallies through those months. We could not get an MP, um, a, a prominent MP. The people who turned up regularly, consistently, were Sinn Féin. Couldn't get a Labour MP in particular onto a platform uh, until the um, day after the massacre, we organised another rally, and then we had about 30 MPs turn up. Um, you know, a number to speak, a number just to be there, present at the rally. Um, and I said to someone on the day, well, now we, we know how many Palestinians have to die in a single day before people find the, the moral backbone. And it generally was, this is so shocking, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be there. Um, but before that, it was, well, if I go, who, who might be speaking? Um, how is it going to be framed? What sort of attack will I come under? So that's an example for me of the chilling effect in action of, of people's, you know, even I would say good people, people who care about the cause saying, this isn't necessarily, you know, do I want to spend political capital on this issue? Yeah, do I want yeah. to die in the ditch on this issue? Right. At the moment, there's massive pressure on universities in the UK to adopt the IHRA. We're having dialogue with um, university officials uh, with vice chancellors, etc., and there are a number who are saying this is wrong. We don't think all of the evidence tells us this definition doesn't necessarily help the fight against anti-Semitism. It doesn't aid us in fighting racism. We think it's a threat to freedom of expression. But do I want to die in this ditch? Uh, is this the ditch I want to die in? Is this you know we think the government's engaged in a huge culture war against universities? Do we want to make this? The, the ground where we plant the flag not necessarily and that's the challenge because they know that the narrative around this has become so overwhelming so, so now we're in a place where you're anti-semitic if you question the IHRA definition mm. that in itself is inherent anti-semitism never mind that the numerous Jewish academics the leading experts on anti-semitism I would say in the world who've come out Brian Klug David Feldman uh, Tony Lerman, who've all said this is a pernicious definition. Stephen Sedley, ex-Court of Appeal judge, Jewish, who says this is, you know, this is a very dangerous definition. Uh, it doesn't matter uh, to question it. Um, and, you know, David Feldman wrote an article in The Guardian last week, two days later, the campaign against anti-Semitism, introducing him. So effectively calling this, you know, um, 
respected eminent scholar of anti-Semitism who's devoted most of his life to the study of anti-Semitism and to imposing it, who understands how pernicious it is, suddenly he's a, a dubious character, possibly an anti-Semite, might because he says this definition is wrong, not helpful, um, and people shouldn't adopt it. So it's a Kafkaesque McCarthyite process. Um, but it's, it, it, you know, it is powerful. It is very powerful. It makes people very, very frightened. Yeah, and it also meant that, um, as you've said, you couldn't get a, a single MP um, from Labour or the Conservatives or the Liberal Democrats, only Sinn Féin MPs to your demonstrations during those um, terrible Israeli massacres in 2018, which also means um, uh, that um, that includes Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn wasn't there when in past years he would have been leading those demonstrations, you know, at a time when he was leading the Labour Party. Now, the Palestine Solidarity Campaign is a non-partisan organisation in the sense that um, you are not allied to any p particular political party. But I, I do still want to talk about the Labour Party a bit more. Um, <laughs> Something you might, Ava. Yeah, so, <laughs> so in September you signed, it wasn't a PSC initiative, but you, no. um, as Ben Jamal, the British Palestinian, you signed a letter, an open letter to the Labour Party. I'll just yeah. read a, a little bit of, a little extract from it. Um, and you and the others said, uh, we believe that an internationalist Labour Party has a special responsibility to redress the ongoing injustices against the Brit Palestinian people denied their right to self-determination during the British mandate because of the role Britain played as a colonial power leading up to the 1948 Nakba. However, we remain deeply concerned about steps being taken which will only serve to shrink the space in the Labour Party for British Palestinians and other members to assert their right to campaign for an end to the oppression of the Palestinian people. Uh, third extract. We are extremely concerned by any conflation of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. Zionism is a political ideology and movement that has led to our dispossession and that sustains a state that discriminates against us and denies us our collective rights, whether as victims of military occupation, unequal citizens of the Israeli state, or living in exile as refugees denied the right of return to our homeland. Um, so. In in essence, you and uh, the others, you know, uh, prominent British Palestinian uh, citizens, um, including uh, Rada Kami, the author who our listeners will know, uh, Salma Dabah, the novelist who um, the occasional contributor to EI, um, Kamal Hawash, also with PSC, um, and. Um, several others including um a former labor councillor yeah just tell us a little bit more about this letter how has the manufacturing of an anti-semitism crisis in the labor party made it harder for psc and for palestine solidarity activists in general over the past five years yeah and look the, the, this sort of process that we're talking about is broad the letter was directed at the labor party and a you know, said there are specific dynamics going on of why this has become such a toxic issue within the Labour Party. Um, and and just picking up on what you said, because it's important, PSC is not partisan, and that's quite important. And, and strategically, we know 
um, it's not helpful to building a broad movement if we say the concern about Palestine should be a concern that's only rooted in one arena of British politics. But, but there's also, you know, against that, a reality that you care about Palestine. Um, if you care about Palestine, that usually comes from a set of progressive values. Um, and that you see the Labour Party as a key vehicle in the UK for the sort of manifestation and implementation of those values and the internationalism i think this is also something we said in the letter should should be at the heart of what the labor party stands for and, and you can go further you say look you know somebody once said the labor party is a moral cause or it's nothing so in a sense there was a sort of appeal to all of that and the other thing in all the dialogue i've had in different ways with people within the senior levels of the labor party is you have to understand as well that what you are doing inside the Labour Party matters for the rights of members in the Labour Party, but it echoes elsewhere. So if the Labour Party takes certain steps, then the arguments I want to have with universities and other places become harder if people say, well, look, even the Labour Party's done X, Y, Z. So how is it? Um, and as I said, the, the, the way it's manifesting itself, as I say, the big danger is... Um, you know, I think this, this, this creation of a sort of chilling effect, of a marginalisation of um, the issue of Palestine, um, of a risk of a drive, and we address this, that, that part of the argument being put to the Labour Party, very nakedly, people like Luke Akers have made this argument very overtly, saying, hey, Labour Party, it's not enough for you to say you're standing up against anti-Semitism, you're taking all these measures, you're adopting the IHRA, um, if you continue with the same policy you've got on Palestine, um, th that you need to understand that if you continue, as they frame it, to allow the demonization of Israel. Luke Akers wrote a piece where he said, we will, something along the lines of, we will know that, that, in a sense, the Labour Party's in the right place where we don't see the flag of Palestine flying on the floor of the Labour Party conference. So he's almost like, you know, that yeah, and the, of... the academic, David, uh, pro Israel campaigner and academic David Hirsch, yeah. um, he uh, he said something very similar as well yeah. in a film about about how you know how how terribly anti-Semitic it was to have these flags, Palestinian flags at Labour Party conference, yeah. you know, just openly yeah. anti-Palestinian racism. So so yeah, so look, this is this is the sort of challenge, and the, and the the. The challenge also strategically is um, how do we fight this battle that we need to we need to call it out and we need to defend the space we need to do that in a strategic way for PSC that means for example uh, you know it, it, it would not be the right approach if PSC was focusing on every individual case of a Labour member who comes under um, suspension for anti-semitism etc but we have to speak to the broad narrative of um, that if and, and part of what we say is, and this is an important point, um, that I have never had any truck with anyone who says there really is no problem of anti-Semitism on the left. There's no problem of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. There's no, you know, the, there's no anti-Semitism within the Palestine Solidarity Movement. Because part of my answer is, well, you must be walking around with cloth ears because I've been in the movement for 20 years. I've met anti-Semites. There's a separate question to how prevalent are they? Uh, how much do they dominate the arena? But of course there are people um, who um, 
willingly use anti-Semitic tropes, who, who sometimes use the word Zionist, where you know you're talking about Jews who talk about Zionists controlling the world, who use tropes about Israel that draw on anti-Semitic uh, narratives. All of that is true. But what's going on is an attempt to say, um, be suspicious of anybody. You know, so when you start saying if you're waving a Palestine flag, it's saying, well, suspect that this person is probably an anti-Semite because that's how you should regard anyone that's showing solidarity for Palestine. So there's a challenge in terms of getting the balance of making sure that space is defended. But the risk is, of course, also the other way we lose is if all we're talking about um, within the Labour Party or elsewhere is anti-Semitism and the definition of anti-Semitism, and we stop talking about Palestine, then bingo, you know, the Israeli government would be delighted with that outcome. Let's have a conversation, let's trap these people in a conversation where effectively their main message is we are not anti-Semites. So it's how do you get that balance right? How do you deal with the chilling effect by not adding to it, by making Palestine a toxic issue, how do you empower people? So part of the way you deal with the chilling effect is you've got to create space to keep empowering people um, to speak up about Palestine, uh, to feel empowered to do that. I would much rather that all CLPs at the moment were passing motions on Palestine that challenged any attempt to row back on Labour Party policy, then spending their time passing motions on anti-Semitism, but at the same time, when people see a McCarthyite process being enacted, when they see people being, you know, we've got a prominent person in the Labour Party at the moment who apparently is under investigation for having said Israel's an apartheid state. Um, so, you, you know, that has to be challenged, that has to be called out, the, the space has to be defended. So that really was what the letter was about. It was a process of saying, we're calling this out. We're telling you also how we experience this as Palestinians, that part of what you're doing is you are preventing us bringing the facts of our history into the public domain. It, in a way, it's an articulation. When that issue happened in Tower Hamlets, um, I was one of those who went to lobby the mayor. And I said something to him. I said, can I just say something to you personally? And I said, look, I'm the grandson of um, a Palestinian called Shukri Jamal and a Palestinian called Nasli Jamal who were forced out of their home in 1948, uh, never allowed to return and died in exile. And the reason that they were forced to flee was for one reason, one reason only, because they were Palestinian, because Israel wanted to establish a state that would have a Jewish majority that would have privileged rights. If I'm gonna tackle that injustice, I have to describe it accurately. And I think the accurate way of describing that is ethnic cleansing. Do you think you've just heard an anti-Semitic statement? And he said, of course I have. And I said, well, there's the problem, because your council officials think that you might have just heard an anti-Semitic statement. And so where am I safe in Tower Hamlets to come and articulate what I've just articulated to you? Where am I safe to go and rent a space in a council building to bring that information into the public domain? to tell people those facts and ask them to take action. If you're saying, well, maybe you're saying something racist. And that's what you have to address. Um, but that's the challenge because it's a clever strategy. It, put, it, it creates a climate of suspicion where the onus is on me to tell the mayor I'm not an anti-Semite yeah. rather than him to demonstrate I think you are actually. Um, yeah. And there are reasonable grounds to suspect that. 
Yeah, and it also it is clever in the in the sense as well that it's it leads to division and it leads to um, sort of mutual denunciations and it leads yeah. to um, suspicion, you know. And it's um, it's it's a very it's a very clever strategy in that sense. Ben, we just have a couple of minutes left as yeah. as you look ahead to twenty twenty one and the organizing that's going to need to, you know, to be done um, throughout the next year. Um, and as you, you know, are, are kind of looking ahead for building PSC um, and creating more of a mass movement uh, in solidarity with Palestinians and advocating for Palestinian rights, what are you planning? What's, what's the next step? Well, in a sense, to, to sort of continue and build on the work that we're doing, um, and so I think we see our role in a number of ways. One is that we provide a platform for Palestinian voices, and that's crucial. And, and that, in a way, one of the strange outcomes of COVID is, the, in some ways, the world's become smaller, hasn't it? That, you know, uh, the thing that we're doing now where we're sitting here talking over Zoom um, uh, and, and setting up a meeting where you're saying, come and meet this Palestinian over Zoom. Two years ago, people would have felt shortchanged. Uh, that's not a real experience. Now people are thinking, okay, I see how this works. And it, it's created much greater opportunity for us to provide a platform for Palestinian voices. Um, we have to educate people um, and break through that, you know, the, the fog of obfuscation that exists through the mainstream media and say, look, here's the reality. This is what's happening. And there's a powerful way of doing that always through through connecting people by making them aware of people's personal stories when people see one of the things i'm always very conscious of anyone who's been out to palestine uh, it's very hard to come back and not feel a sense of deep moral obligation because you see the starkness of the injustice and it's visceral um and it's so clear that you feel compelled to speak about it so we've got to find ways because we can't send everybody to palestine so how can we constantly create those spaces where people see that and then also take this to the heart you know people use this phrase intersectionality as a cliche but for us it means look connect up so people understand that these struggles against unjust systems of power are inextricably linked they all have their own manifestations but they are all about not discriminate against people on unjust and inequitable basis and recognizing people's common humanity um, and in particular, in relation to the anti-racist struggle, we say, look, there is no coherent anti-racist struggle that does not have um, the um, discrimination against Palestinians you know, at its heart. So we keep creating the spaces for those type of messaging. And then we keep saying to people, we have to make people aware, do not become desperate and feel that these forces are overwhelming. Focus on what you can do and that's where we take people to the BDS message, which says there are a myriad of ways in which you can cease to be complicit and encourage others not to be complicit. The final thing I would say is this, and um, I had the honor to be on a panel a couple of weeks ago with Ronnie Kazros, um, who spent his speech inspiring people with hope. Um, and he reminded us, he said, look, I am convinced of the inevitability uh, of the victory in this struggle. Um, and he talked about the moments in the struggle against uh, apartheid in South Africa where people felt that forces are overwhelming. 
um, and he reminded us, and he reminded us of this, that solidarity at its heart is an act of hope. Uh, it is rooted in a belief that the arc of history bends towards progress, but in what I would say is the wisdom to recognize that it doesn't do that unless you lean on it collectively and you have to place collective weight on it. Um, and that's our responsibility. And we've got to try and give people the vision. You know, most of us of a certain generation can remember the day when Nelson, we watched on telly Nelson Mandela walking out of prison. And for a lot of people, there was a sense of, what have you contributed to this moment? What did you do to help bring about this moment? Were you on the right side of history? And that's the message. I'm inspired by a vision of, you know, one day being in Jerusalem, um, where actually there's a dawn uh, on a, a, a new place where actually everybody's enjoying equal rights, whatever the state structure that achieves that, uh, where there is not a state that privileges the rights of one people over another. Um, and to be in that moment to say, you know, what message will that give to people that this profound injustice was overcome? And what did you do to contribute to it? You know, what did you do to say, I added my voice, I added my weight in whatever way I could to that outcome, which will, which will give a message for all of humanity. And that, that's the hope that we, you know, even in our darkest moments, in our angriest moments, we can't, we can't lose that. And finally, we can't lose it because the Palestinian people don't have a choice. They're obliged to continue to struggle. Was it Mahmoud Darwish said, look, you know, we want to live ordinary lives, but when you're deprived of the homeland, you're obliged to be a slave to that homeland. You're obliged to struggle for justice, and they will not give up that struggle. So what choice do we have but to join them? We have to. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast, Ben. We really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. And keep up what you're doing. That's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>